makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Greetings and yes, good day and welcome. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's a good day for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio. And I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse and you are listening to an all native hosted, all native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. And you can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzz Sprouts, Spotify, as well as First Voices, IndigenousRadio.org for archives. Our first guest, Stephen D'Angelo, is a prominent, lifelong cannabis entrepreneur, activist, author, and on-screen personality. And he co-founded several iconic cannabis businesses, and including the projects, also a book. Out of that comes books, the Cannabis Manifesto, and a Discovery Channel miniseries, Weed Wars. And he was a lead organizer and fundraiser for I-59, which was Washington, D.C.'s medical cannabis initiative, and is famed for successful litigation against the Department of Justice, which halted DOJ's last-ditch 2011 campaign to shut down California's medical cannabis dispensaries. And as we talk of laws recently passed regarding cannabis and an age-old stigma, the evolution of thought with usage and more, including his experience with cannabis and with the indigenous thought process. And we're going to go right to Stephen D'Angelo. And those of us who are wondering why is Teokasen talking about this cannabis is because a lot of legalization in the U.S., at least on certain reservations, has made it so that we have to pay attention to what's happening after and outside of the boundaries of the reservations and to keep up on this other world that's happening to us. Let's happen to it. And this is Stephen D'Angelo. I'm often in company of people who know more than I do, so my, my motto is, I don't know. And, and that's including that information and the knowledge you have about something that people would not talk about. A few, a few years ago, 10 years ago, two decades ago, people were in the biblical mind of that's not good, it's bad for you, and just the whole hubris around the fear of not knowing. People want to know, what am I talking about? What is Teokasen talking about again? You know, and after going through your book, The Cannabis Cannabis Manifesto that you released in 2015, it said a lot of this makes sense. There's got to be something deeper, a profundity, you know, deeper intelligence going on here. And from what I sensed is that we're on the edge of really understanding how the plants already understand us, Steve D'Angelo. And this is for 
the listeners who don't know, who have preconceived notions about the subject called marijuana or even cannabis? Well, I've been a, a cannabis activist and a cannabis entrepreneur my whole life, ever since I had my first experience with the plant when I was 13 years old. And during most of that period of time, I have to say that I never really credited the plant with having agency in that process. I always thought that I was the, the activist who was working to liberate the plant. And um, now looking backwards over the course of 50 years to my first experience with cannabis, you know, I can I can recognize that that that's that really hasn't been the case. Um, that really the the plant has has been calling me, and and has been active in this struggle for you know longer than before I showed up in this cycle here on this on this planet. And um, so my first experience uh, was when I was 13 years old. I walked on my way home. I was walking through a park and. For me, this was just a, a way to get home. It was a shortcut from one place to another. I never really noticed any of the features of the park before. And on this day, it was different. I started noticing the light filtering through the leaves of the trees and even seeing how I could see the veins, the internal veins of the leaves through the light that was passing through them. And, and then I, I noticed that the dried leaves were crunching underneath my, my feet below. And I could smell the smell of those those leaves, and I I heard the gurgling of a brook in the in the distance, a creek, and I felt that same sun on the back of my neck, and I could feel sweat beginning to rise up uh, on my skin. And there was just one moment where I felt connected to all of these things, and just in in the moment, in the web of life, in nature. It was the first time I've ever experienced anything like that. I walked out of that park knowing that something important had happened to me and something valuable, but I didn't really, it took me years and years, really decades of processing to understand really what, what was going on there. And looking backwards now, I, you know, I, I do, I, I believe that there was a, a call um, and that, that, that mother earth was reaching through that plant to me. By the time I had reached my home, I decided that I was going to be a cannabis activist. I grew up in a uh, activist family, a civil rights family. This is, you know, in 1970 when all of this is happening, uh, 1969, 1970. So it's very natural for me to to stand up um, uh, and protest. One of my other early memories from from this era was the uh, takeover of the BIA, the AIM takeover of the BIA in Washington D.C. in those years. So it was kind of in that environment that I became a cannabis activist and. That's a great beginning. And I, I'm wondering what it led to thinking is why are people afraid of coming out about cannabis and why such a stigma of, of shame? Well, this is actually something that's been going on in the Western world for a lot longer than cannabis has been illegal in the United States. In the United States, cannabis came to North America through two vectors around the turn of the last century. One was in the hands of Mexicans who were fleeing the violence and the chaos of the Mexican Revolution around 1910. And the other was in the hands of Afro-Caribbean sailors who were sailing into ports like New York and New Orleans. And in both cases, the, you know, these were populations that were, the, you know, were victimized by systematic racism. 
And that manifested itself in a series of laws. So the very first laws against cannabis were passed by the states, by border states, um, like Arizona, like California, 1912. And if you go back and read the legislative record, there's no discussion of the scientific properties of the plant or even really how or why people are using it. It's all about who's using the plant. These Mexicans, they're coming here, they're strange, they're unpredictable, they're wild, they're violent. They have to be brought under control. We have to pass this law. When that stigma continues into this day, that gives a legacy of over 100 years. And the first laws passed nationally, I think, it took more stranglehold in the 30s and 20s, am I correct? And then they continued on into the 70s with the Rockefeller drug laws here in New York State? Yeah, exactly. There was a state-by-state -state process by which around 30 states had passed uh, state bans on cannabis. And then there's this really evil character, Harry Anslinger, who came along, who uh, started, who, who at the time of alcohol prohibition was a commissioner of the U.S. Treasury, and he was charged with stopping alcohol from entering the United States. When he saw that alcohol prohibition was going to end, he got himself appointed as the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which had just been created. And one of the first things that he did was go on a, a really a, a viciously racist campaign to make cannabis illegal at the federal level, which happened in 1937. Wow. So when we make it a federal level, he called it racist campaign. Are we saying that there was sort of this racism against, of course, not only human beings, but there's a certain amount of uh, racism against the plant, if you understand yeah, I, I think I do. Um, so what my later study has has taught me is that, you know, for ever since human beings have been human beings 12,000 more years ago, we have archaeological evidence that we've been using visionary plants like cannabis, like peyote, like mushrooms um, in order to seek visions and um, and and to orient ourselves in, in this world. Um, around 2,000 years ago in the Western world, and I, I believe a few thousand years earlier in the Eastern world in China, um, we as a species took a wrong turn and we banned visionary plants. This happened in the Western world when the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as its official religion and Christianity banned the use of, of all visionary plants, which up until that time had been used um, in Egypt and uh, uh, you know, with all the great Egyptian civilization, the ancient Greeks, who were actually provided the philosophical basis for Western civilization, were all using visionary plants. And so mm -hmm. this, this really dates to, to that long. And ever since then, there's been a, a religious campaign, really, um, to, against these plants. One of the first um, uh, organizations, groups of indigenous people that were targeted by the Spanish Inquisition uh, in Mexico was Las Hermanas Limpias, uh, which was a sisterhood that was dedicated to maintaining the sacred space in which mushroom ceremonies could happen. They were burned at the stake. This domino effect about why people were treated the way kind of goes all, all across, you know, and, and now the clarity is what I'm experiencing from you because of what, what you're telling me in the history and even the carrying on of something that that thinking is antiquated coming from two, three, four thousand years ago. 
I'm going to make the distinction, Steve D'Angelo, about, you know, the Western world and the Eastern world, but yet there's a certain amount of dismissal of the Western Hemisphere in that because we as Native people are, in fact, that Western world. So to us, Eastern world includes Europe, you see. So I think um, just getting over those thoughts of thinking how we know what we mean, but why don't we say what, what it really is? And so, again, that whole stigma about this marijuana is for fun, it's for recreation. We don't know how to use it. We've been abusing it now from, from that generation of the 60s onward, and now it's become this commercialization. The commercialization of it, is, is that indeed the need to get people to accept cannabis thought process even more, or is it just the fact that people want to make money from something that's given so freely by the plant itself? Well, um, it's, it's, it's both. Um, so the way that I think about this issue, the commercialization of cannabis, is I have a great deal of faith in the plant herself and, and her ability to teach people the kinds of lessons that I've learned from her over my life. And I know that in my case, the cannabis that I was consuming for much of my life passed through the hands of some extremely corrupt and violent organizations. Mm. And, and it still uh, worked. It's, it taught me the lessons that I needed to learn. And so when I think about the commercialization of cannabis, I think of it sort of this Trojan horse that we've pushed into the heart of, of the corporate world. And uh, without even realizing the true power of the plant, they've focused on the money that, that they can make from it. And for me, as long as this, the laws change and this plant makes her way into hands of people all around the world, then the change that she's come to help us make will happen. And, and the corporations don't know what they're doing as they're spreading this plant around. They don't know that they are sowing the seeds of the change that will hopefully one day disempower them and, and bring a new kind of um, more natural order back to our lives and the societies we're building. You know, a few years ago, at early 2000s, a friend of mine, Alex White Plume from Pine Ridge, if you've ever heard about this case, there was the first incident of incidents of growing hemp on the reservation. The feds brought Black Hawk helicopters onto the reservation and got out their flamethrowers and disintegrated the whole 40 acres. And that was not too long ago within the last 20 years. I guess there's not a compensation for it, but now they're allowing um, certain reservations to go ahead and grow marijuana in a sense. But at the borders outside, from what I know, is that there are still feds waiting for natives to bring that off and, you know, sell it illegally or whatever. But I don't think that's the intent of native people. I think a lot of people have not understood what you are saying course, the stigma of our of our uh, attitudes that stands in the way and the seeds, the, the integrity of the plant as a whole will come forward because, as you said, it has hundreds, if not thousands of uses so that maybe it's part of the balance that we are seeking through what you're doing, your lifetime's work and what a lot of indigenous peoples have been saying all along that it's going to the earth is going to change us rather than us trying to change the earth to our needs. Yeah, I, I, I believe that um, from the very bottom of my heart, uh, if you you the, the incredible thing about the cannabis plant 
the incredible gift is that this plant in one in one plant will wake up our spirits and our hearts and bring us closer to nature and at the same time give us an amazing raw material that we need to heal the damage that we've done to the earth and to find new ways of providing for our needs that that work with mother nature rather than trying to dominate her and so there are about 25,000 to 50,000 different products that can be made out of industrial hemp. This is the variety of cannabis that's grown without any euphoric or psychoactive properties. And uh, you know, major uh, um, product segments like fuel, uh, textiles, paper, packaging, plastics, food, uh, the hemp seed has a greater amount of protein in it than on the planet. There's a semiconductor known as graphene that's an essential element in solar collectors. And right now it's being mined in Africa and other places at, at great social and, and, and environmental cost. It instead can be made naturally from hemp. The, the real uh, kicker here is that hemp cleans the planet as it grows. It cleans the soil uh, by a process of phytoremediation. So it basically sucks poisons out of the soil. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as it is harvested, as it grows, it sequesters atmospheric carbon, about 20 tons of atmospheric carbon per hectare. So uh, just this incredible potential we have. Wow. What stands in the way of that potential, Steve D'Angelo? Well, it's mostly the stigma and the ignorance that you were that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, you know, we are beginning to see the end of that um, in some places, but around the world, I mean, the United States, uh, for many, many years, spent a great deal of money and a great deal of diplomatic and even military energy in order to force other countries to stop cultivating cannabis. And now one of the ironies, as the United States is beginning to recultivate cannabis, is that many of these countries around the world, countries like Korea, countries like Malaysia, are very reluctant to to make that step because of all of the pressure that's been put on them for all of these years. I think a lot of people are putting the, their economy ahead of the wellness of the earth. And I'm thinking that uh, what I'm getting from what you're saying and, and how I'm affected by what you're saying is how are we using the plant to make clarity, help us have clarity with what is really a natural process within us. And that that's what I'm getting from the other night. I thought about what, 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 is, what questions can I ask Steve? And the clarity that came through is that, yes, the plant is much bigger message than Steve D'Angelo or, or Teokas and Ghost Horse. And I think if, if we allow that earth thought process to come through, then it brings clarity about even how we use or even misuse. And it shows us that all along, it's been showing us how to use this energy in a good way, so to speak. Yeah, I, I, there's just an incredible thing that I think is happening around the world today. And, and you know, because the, the oppression against this plant was, was so severe and, and so ugly, because a, a, a movement grew up to liberate this plant that's now spread around the world, because, you know, amazing artists like, like Bob Marley and Peter Tosh uh, incorporated that that viewpoint into music that's that's spread all around the world. There's hundreds of millions of people around the world now who have a relationship with this visionary plant. And, and, and we've all had the same experiences. We've learned the same lessons. 
and we've developed a, a common value system. And an important part of that value system is respecting Mother Earth, honoring nature and finding our way back to a balanced relationship, finding a way to create the things that we need to live without destroying the place that we live in. Let's talk a little bit before we go about the laws that are now now in favor of legalizing uh, marijuana when marijuana doesn't give a care one way or the other. So it, it's our own um, hubris or it's our own ego in the way of what the plant really is going going to have its way anyway. So let's talk about the, the the local laws here in New York, New York, but in this area, if not the nation, the United States. Nationwide, the laws that have are legalizing cannabis are like most of the other laws. They've been written for the benefit of the elites that have run this society for many generations. And um, uh, so if you look at, at, at California, for example, as the uh, industry became more regulated, it all be also became less diverse. And many of the people who had been active in the struggle to make the plant free were squeezed out of making a livelihood with the, with the plant. In some cases, they were legally banned from, from working in the, in the legal industry. And that's pretty much been the been the pattern nationwide that the that 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 the plant has moved out of the hands of communities of color and and into the hands of, of more white corporations. New York has learned from these uh, unfortunate episodes that have that have happened and has enacted the most progressive set of cannabis laws we've seen anywhere. They offer us the promise, although you know not necessarily the reality, unless we continue to struggle for it, of a new and different kind of, of cannabis industry that will spread the wealth more broadly and welcome in the legacy uh, operators who have been carrying this plant uh, through, through the darkness of prohibition. Now we're talking about within the borders of the U.S., but per se, the South America, where you described a, a journey that, that you uh, had with the Kogi. Would you describe that to us and what they're asking of you and why they called you into their presence? I'm, I'm not sure why the Kogi decided to, to call me into their presence. I'm, I'm honored that they chose to do so. And um, when, uh, you know, what I, what I was told was that they, so just a little bit of background, uh, you know, the, the Kogi, like many indigenous, had cannabis brought to their lands by outsiders. It is what the Kogi call an orphan plant. And, and because of the violent underground trade, that, um, that plant has been, the cannabis plant has been associated with, with misery, with displacement, with violence, with massacres in, in the Kogi life. And so for a long time, they've pushed that plant away. They've not embraced cannabis or, or tried to work it into their understanding of the world. And the Kogi understanding of the world is very much based around an understanding of, of sacred plants and the lessons that they teach us. And so now with the new information that's come out about cannabis, with the change in the laws, uh, the Kogi have heard about all of this new information and new science and new changes that are happening. And so they are coming to a, a place of wanting to reconsider their relationship with the plant and to see if there's a way to integrate it into their spiritual and social systems consistently with their value system. And so they invited me to 
uh, engage in, in, in a dialogue with them. Uh, and um, I, we've, we've, we've had one meeting in that dialogue. They have invited us to continue the two meetings in that dialogue. Um, and they've encouraged us, uh, you know, we, we, that dialogue will continue. So um, that, that was the experience with, with the Kogi since then that other indigenous groups have facing similar challenges have, have reached out. And um, I'm hoping that I can be helpful. Yes, indeed. And as this indigenous person speaks is that in a way that the Kogi are showing maybe the rest of the world, in, including, I mean, the, the Western world, is that we too need to sit down and divine the plant as they are without the education uh, and even experience with it. You said it might have been a, uh, dismayed a little bit by the usage and misuse of it. And, and now what I'm saying in the end is that, wow, they are sitting down and reopening something that was offended in their mind, in their spirit, in their land, in their way. But now they're sitting down to divine it. And it's kind of like a micro um, journey that they've, they are going through is we've made it into a macro here in the U.S. And we too need that journey and that divining, so to speak. And that's what I'm getting out of what you're saying. So any good words, any last words that you want to tell the people out there that's very important to you? Well, um, you know, I, the, what, what is, is really moving for me now is that there's a new generation of, of young people who are growing up, who have grown up in an environment where the stigma is not so great about this plant, where, where the struggle to, to, for, for freedom isn't so intense. And they've been able to look at it through a different kind of lens. And, and what I find is there's a real hunger uh, um, for them to learn how to use this plant and other plants in a more conscious, intentional, and ceremonial way to, uh, to explore their own spirits, to learn lessons, and to find a new, a new way of living. And that's not something that was present in my generation. We were getting high. I didn't expect that lesson that I got from the plant. I was just expecting to get high. And so um, I believe that the, that the lessons that this plant is teaching us are having not only an individual impact, but a generational impact. And it's, a, it's a, just a very beautiful and hopeful thing mm. for me to experience and see. Oh, that's so good words, uh, Steve D'Angelo. And you're reminding me of what elders are always telling me. Be careful of not to educate the wisdom out of yourself, because that's, that's the nature of, of, of the earth is to always contain the wisdom that we miss because we're educating everything out. So it's the uses of our wisdom and let's learn how to use, let allow the plant to use us to bring us experience of how to get along and have peace with the earth. But thank you so much. It's a good honor to have you here and, and uh, being able to take my wide ranging questions. It's been an honor to be with you, Tioka-san, and with your audience. Be well, stay I free. Will. Thank you. And that was Steve D'Angelo, who is an author, who is a prominent, lifelong cannabis entrepreneur and activist. Of course, he lives in California. I don't say of course because that's where he lives now, but he also lives in and out of Washington, D.C. originally. Our second guest for the second half hour, Jennifer Robin, is a.k.a. Mischief is Choctaw. She is a four-time award-winning producer and host of the Resilience Radio on KVMR. 89.5 FM in Nevada City, California, and three stations serving the Sierra and the foothills in Northern California. 
Resilience Radio, Jennifer's three-hour weekly live radio show, is a mix of interviews and music and can be heard at kvmr.org and any time in the KVMR archives. And Jennifer can be found on Facebook at Jennifer Robin and Miss Jiffer on Instagram. And we talked, as we do as Native people, we talk about everything and not try to squeeze information but feeling into what we're saying and how it is between Native peoples and how we communicate a little differently than the agenda-filled non-Native. And um, and I think there is a difference in how we think and feel. As everybody, we can say that in the general context, but when you're among Native people, there's a difference. And you have to, to know that because there is a difference when I'm speaking to non-Native people. So I'm not trying to qualify or justify anything. It just, uh, this was, this is a great, lively, good interview. And we're going to go to the very end with Jennifer Robin, who is out of right now Nevada City, California. And here we go, Jennifer Robin. You know, Well, radio is easy. It's all the aftermath of chopping up. And once you're a live person, like once you're, I started live. So when mm-hmm. that on-air button is on, mm-hmm. it's go time. So when I'm alone, pre-producing things, talking to myself, it ju- it's a whole different element without that pressure of the red light do you think you speak clearer to yourself looking in the mirror rather than knowing that you don't see all the thousands of faces out there but but you know at least one of them is listening to you i have been told that my voice over the airwaves wakes dogs up (laughs) so um i i I try my best to be professional, but it usually only lasts about three minutes. So I feel like I have more animal listeners and people listeners, and I'm okay with that. And then now you have to edit yourself. So I'm just tired of listening to myself 12 hours a week. And there's an ephemeralness to radio that always has been there. Like you tune in, you make an effort to engage something because if you miss it, you miss it. So there's that. That is gone in a way. People want everything when they want it. So the making time or making these FM experiences a priority again has kind of faded. It kind of has. And I think there's certain isolated pockets or bubbles, if you, if I will. In the late 2017, the surveys were taken that more intelligent people listen to radio if it's talk show. And because they want to engage. So there's a big discrepancy between the listenership, the ones who want the top 40 and the upbeat, high energetic. And you as a radio host, producer in your area, I, I want to know what's going on in Northern California. I'm, I'm pretty sure you do local shows, too, from the area. But also you reach out to do you read out, reach out to other countries? Yes, Um we have, since we're worldwide webin, um, I have some listeners in Norway and Australia and Canada counts. Yeah. <laughs> <as> <laughs> um, yes, there, there is an interest and a hunger for the truth. I think now for not. No, I mean, everybody's got a truth, but I mean, I guess the indigenous truth and how 
we're shedding light on untold stories and pockets of history. And I think that people kind of get mad that they haven't been told this growing up. I think I think we all feel that way. We weren't told the truth. We were it's this thing that we were told beating around the bush words rather than going directly to the to the heart of the matter, so to speak. And I think that's what radio does if you're truly a, a radio person. But also your title of your program, Resilience Radio. You know, everybody wants to claim that resilience. Um, there's resistance radio out there. There's revolution radio. But to listen to resilience radio does something else to you. Why did you choose that title? Well, my program was started in 1999 by a NASA engineer retiree who was the whitest of the white. <laughs> and he went to the station and said, hey, there is no native voice music sound or anything on this station. So the program director, Steve Baker, said, OK, do what you want. So Skip Allen Smith, my predecessor, my Sifu, my sensei, he started it with just music and he would go to a few things. He met Robert Mirabal. You know, he did a little bit of engagement, but for the most part, it was music. And then my dad met him, my Choctaw father, and they became he became a part time co-host. And that is when the native voice started. But the program started as Dreamwalk because the community, the, the new agey community at the time chose that name. And I always hated it. I hated it because it's not dream time and we're not Aboriginal. Like I just hated the name. So about five years ago, when Skip retired finally after darn near 20 years and my dad moved out of the area, so wasn't able to, you know, co-host as much. I decided to change the name because it, I, I was too embarrassed to put my show out. I was too embarrassed to Nami's. I was because Dreamwalk just didn't feel right, like nothing about it. So I sat, I prayed, I talked to other indigenous folk and Resilience Radio seem to fit because I don't feel like an activist. I don't always want to go fight, fight, fight. I feel like my activism and my resistance is holding a platform for people to tell their truth. I think that is the most effective way to open hearts and enact change. When you switch it from dream walk. Now the resilience radio is take talking to a reality, a certain type of activism, as you say, as far as the arranging of your guests and, and you know, what would you say? Is there, is there a common theme to how you interview your guests or anything like that? No. And that's what I think I like is each week and each individual is so different. And each of those individuals brings something different out of me. So I follow their lead. If somebody wants to be more still and quiet and talk about pain, I let them do that. So I try to meet people where they're at because this isn't my platform. This is their platform. And when you talk about resilience, it's not just an indigenous thing. It's a human thing. If we don't turn that pain that trauma, those terrible experiences, the ugly words, if we don't turn those into something beautiful and to carry us forward, we're going to cry and die. 
So I feel like resilience is is something that everybody can understand is coming through something on the other side and coming out better. And when you're you're speaking from that that voice of your father, um, I'm feeling that resilience. And, you know, I could go back into the history about the Trail of Tears and all that. And the the resilience is much more than the 1492 of indigenous folks. We absorbed all of that trauma, so to speak. And I think with your voice from that part of the country where it's needed, needs rain, it's the same quenching and thirst that this country, at least the world and the Western Hemisphere, needs Native people's voices to quench that thirst, not just for knowledge or information or wisdom, but because what I think, um, Jennifer, is there's a lacking of experience with the land as Indigenous peoples have. And what you're doing, from what I hear it, is that you're voicing that experience of the Indigenous folks. I think it is a huge honor and privilege, and I still am shocked that I'm in this position in my life. I'm a biology major, okay? So I I started off completely different, and not only being able to continue week after week to be in this realm, but the fact that people like you want to talk to me, the fact that I get to hold a sacred space for people to share, even though there's 30,000 people listening, it feels like a one-on-one conversation with another human I deeply care about. And once you feel heard, I think that's when healing kind of starts. Like when you get it out of your body, you know, that's when I think, not not necessarily like the whole world is going to heal, but that that individual can walk away feeling heard and start processing the next steps in their life. So, again, I'm still shocked that I get to be here and I'm still shocked that you called me back. So, um, no, no, that's what I, I wanted to do. I think the word is reciprocity without the big R. That's normal. Everything's that we do when I was First beginning in this, I, I interviewed a four-year-old, and it was like the, the most intelligent, simplistic, complex interview. Then about 10 years later, I interviewed a 96-year-old. Four and 96, there's 100 years of experience in there. And they were almost saying the same thing. One was coming in and one was going out, right? But they still held that same energy. When Is there in, a difference you see in non-natives that if, if you had interviewed any non-natives as compared to native people? Well, in my experience, non-natives have more of an agenda. In my experience, non-natives have more, are more organized in what they want to bring to the table. Whereas I feel natives, not that they're lack of prepared, but they seem to just go more with the flow. Um, I feel that sometimes with non-natives, they don't, they're uncomfortable veering away from their list because of whatever fear of judgment or this and that, whereas natives, whatever, we've already been judged and, and ridiculed. So there's more kind of more of a, a, a loose freedom. And then two, when a native is talking to a native, there's not a catch up. I don't feel the need to explain to you my people's tribal history the past 200 years. We can sink into a human to human conversation without me catching you up on my trauma or my drama. 
to me, there's there's a freedom in it. And I don't know if non-natives have it anxiety about talking to indigenous people. And that's why they feel this need to have a pamphlet or a structured something is because of their anxiety or, or I don't know what it is, but I love talking to my indigenous folk because the conversations just, they go everywhere. And I love that talking to you. My mind was blown for two weeks processing a lot of what we talked about. And then not only that, watching what we talked about, manifest itself in the days and weeks that follow. So there's this juicy, this juicy little creator aspect, this juicy little spiritual aspect that goes into it. And, and I enjoy it. Thank you for that. You know, it's, it's like you said, the judging and being afraid to judge, yet, yet there's the ones who don't want to sin, and then there's the sinners, us, right? If yep. we could say it that way. And, and quite often, very, very in my early career of radio is, that I would often get, well, you could have said it this way. You sounded angry, and then you would be self-critical. But then I start understanding that, yes, I have to prove myself wrong in order to say something on a radio. It's not so much information and data. It's the fact that the oral truth that we carry as Native people often conveys through that sense of being, like you say, when you talk to other Indigenous folks, where there is just coming from this list, and did I get it correctly from what I remembered, what I wrote down, rather than the experience. So have you gotten calls or emails from other folks criticizing you or correcting you? So starting at the beginning, I had an email that they don't like my voice. Well, I can't do anything about that. Um, for years, as my dad would pop in and out as co-host, people didn't like my father and I's uh, relationship because we pick at each other because that's what that's how you show love. If you honestly love somebody, you know what buttons to press because you paid enough attention to them to know what's going to make them laugh or make them angry or make that, you know, so having an almost childlike interaction with my dad, we're, we're like litter mates, you know, I play with my father, I pick on my father, he picks on me. And that is our way. And so a lot of people at the beginning didn't understand that. Because I'd pick on my dad and he would laugh because it was a good joke and he respected that joke. So a lot of people were confused by that interaction. Um, I have gotten handwritten letters on how Indigenous People's Day needs to be a different day than Columbus Day. Handwritten. Somebody took the time to say they understand where we are coming from, but we should pick a different day. I also mentioned that 4th of July, a few years ago on 4th of July, my program fell on that day. And I said, it's a hard day for a lot of slave descendants and indigenous people because we're celebrating independence, yet these people don't feel independent. I had a woman call me in tears because she assumed that they lock all the black and native kids away and don't let them watch fireworks or do barbecues. So she came to this whole conclusion, scream crying at me to not lock children away and let them celebrate Fourth of July. And, and so it's it's hard for me because I think that I'm articulating my ideas, concepts and feelings, but then they get so twisted up somewhere and I care about my community and I want to educate and express. But you just get the handwritten letter got like. 
you took the time to find stationery, to find a pen and take the time to write a two page letter on how we are wrong. So I just handed it over to the station manager and was like, I can't. I can't. Uh-huh. I didn't. I, I And another thing, too, when these experiences happen, I don't shame these people on air. These are private stories. These are stories I share with you, friends. I don't give names. And I I don't want to shame. I don't want people to feel the humiliation that I have felt. I don't, you know, so I do my best to not react. But, man, there are stupid questions and stupid people. Let's just get that out of the way, Jokathan. And, and I think it's the lack of information, history, their own history about who we are that our experience with that culture of America is more we're involved in. We have to live in it. We're surrounded by it. We have to speak the languages. We're dressed apart. And yet at the, at the core is who we are. So I think the saying goes, we are landless, but we're not homeless. And I think what they're doing is going through the, the, the motions or at least the throes of trying to find or at least deny us as speaking the truth that that was then, this is now. It's gaslighting. When you diminish our experience or say, oh, it wasn't that bad or, oh, you needed to have your haircuts anyways, you know, like that, that is gaslighting. And you mentioned boarding school. How could you afford it? I say, oh, I'm going to Sundance. I had somebody say, well, how'd you get tickets? Okay, so I get it. And it kind of makes me when I leave my sacred bubble of friends and family, I tend to actually talk less or try to be more conserved. I don't know. You know, I I shrink a little bit because I worry about snapping at somebody who may have good intentions. I worry about because you can only be asked the same stupid question so many times, like before you just. Not true, Jennifer, you know, 12 percent of the the population is occidental or white in the world. And. 96% 96% of the psychologies that we've been forced to believe in and go through that therapy are controlled by the 12%. And why is that? Like the nuclear family, you are shamed if you still live with parents. Why aren't you? And that's so not our way. Like, yes, everybody wants their freedom and independence, but families an incredible unit. Why do I have to go work 90 hours a week to have my crappy studio alone when I could be at home helping my family, helping my grandma, helping my mom, helping my niece and nephew, you know? So, but they put this shame on you. Oh, you live at home. Like you must be weak or less than or incapable. And that's so nuts to me. Mm-hmm. That is so nuts. Yes. Moms drive you crazy, but guess what? We drive them crazy too. But even in that that realm, you know, if you don't go to college and learn their way, you're uneducated, you're ignorant, you're these things. When no, I have met so many incredibly brilliant people who I consider naturalists just because they sat and watched this world and know more about the forest than than any bachelor's degree or master's degree in forestry, you know. And so that's what's frustrating for me is, like you said, this 13, 12 percent of the population now dictates what we consider is important or relevant. And that sucks. You, you know, 
when I'm thinking about the reach of Resilience Radio, which you do on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific time, it'll be 1 p.m. here Eastern. And I'm thinking that, you know, while she's broadcasting from the foothills of Northern California, when I think about foothills, I'm the small mountains and whatnot, but the reaching effect of indigenous voices, especially these days, no matter where it's coming from, and if we're not rom- over-romanticizing ourselves, has more effect. And, and if I could say this, that we are more dimensionally effective because we have been taken out of the... Our past has t- been been saying, well, you can't live in the past and you can't have a future as who you are. So I lay places exactly where we've always been. We're here in the present. That's why I think your voice is effective and those voices that are speaking the truth without putting you know, the bees and feathers on and just speaking the truth and bringing out maybe different perspectives of that wholer truth, I could say it, a whole truth, not just the manipulated truth. Well, that we have almost 600 nations and especially California, there's so many bands and clans and nobody sat still. You would go to the valley in the summer. I mean, you go to the high country in the summer because it was cooler and you'd leave the mountains and go to the valley in the winter because it's no snow. All these bands and clans moving around and trading and you get this reservation system that says you only lived here. So you have to live here and you will. It is nuts. And I broadcast from gold country. I am less than an hour away from the first gold discovery. I pass multiple gold mining relics on my way to the across the street from the station isn't some rusted old mining equipment they're proud of to get to my indigenous program i am slapped in the face by 15 different gold mining representations and no native representations so we acknowledge one history here in california but we don't acknowledge the other history and and i don't i struggle with that and that's the word. I think some, the Tutsil do not have a word for um, struggle because that's what they're doing. They're actually living it. And that's the life. And I think that's what's underneath the word of resilience, that we know the struggle and we're not about to let other people come and take our culture without the struggle. And that's called a cultural appropriation. But bingo. And there's an anxiety around that, too. As we come out and share more and are more, we are more at risk of these people taking what picking and choosing what they want and then turning it into their own thing. So I see that anxiety a lot, especially with some of the elders, is what they say can somehow be used against them. Like there's still that fear of of they can't express themselves because there will be a, a repercussion. And that's sad. One last question, Jennifer, along with everything that we talked about, is there's been a late, I guess, drive or or noted that more than a big note or or just a a footnote is the headlines in native country are all these imposters that have been coming out, you know, posing as native people. And we have them everywhere. We, We even have them on radio. And they're still continuing on to continuing to resist the native peoples, and, and they're saying, well, I grew up uh, all Italian, and I found out my great-grandmother was, and, and now they're speaking as if everything they say is valid. 
without the experience. Do you have that a lot? And have you been proposed interview me because I have a I am so and so. Yes, I get. Ugh, and it's so hard because let's be real. My program is racist because I'm only focusing on the indigenous voice. So I haven't been countered with. I play the flute. I have an indigenous heart. Can I be on your program? No. Um, I, you know, so there's a lot walking the red road and meeting people. You get a sense of who's walking their talk. And that's kind of who I gravitate to. And you and I have been doing this for so long. Like you, you get a quick sense of somebody finding out that you have a long lost indigenous relative is very, very, very different than being raised on the reservation or amongst your elders or in boarding school. So I honor that they found that that's nice that they found a part of their history that they feel akin to, but it's not for my platform. My platform is for those ride in the red road, walk in the red road and hopscotching the red road. So it's very thoughtful of, the voices that come through your airwaves there at KVMR. Where is is exactly coming out of? Nevada City, California is about an hour north of Sacramento and along the same highway that the first gold in California was discovered. So I'm on Highway 49 huh. because of 1849 and the tidal wave that came after that on the decimation of indigenous populations in California. It's bittersweet. It is huh. absolutely bittersweet. You inherited this voice from, as you say, the progression of your father and if anything, you know the question, how long would you think to be going on? And do you have um, other, like, are you teaching younger folks about radio? Because this is really is about the other generation that's coming after us. I'm never going to stop. I'm going to be wheelchaired to the microphone. I am going to be deaf, trying to read lips and continue interviews. And I... There's an art, there's an art to it. And there's a way to present things to where people want to listen. If I just come to you like this and read a whole bunch of stuff, and this is a sad story, and I continue like this for 45 to 52 minutes, and nobody will listen to me, they will turn me off. So you have to be impassioned. You have to care to do this. Yeah. Yeah, even if you're like, you know, many times I've come on to the air actually because of my breathing inabilities and just like, no, it, it, the message is bigger than me. And that gives you the strength. And I, I, that's what I feel in you. Like, you know that the message has to be out there. And, and little old you and I are, are, are just kind of pushing the buttons. Bingo. We, we matter, but we really don't. This, our programs aren't about us and our desires and our agendas and our feelings about things. We, we press buttons, but when it's go time, we are totally irrelevant. And I like that. The message. What would your message be to those who would dare to listen to us? I say dare because of the, the lot of judgments out there when non-natives listen to us, they, they can only go so far with what we say. Because if it goes past that line, then you become a frenemy to them. It is uncomfortable dismantling a 
a thought system. It is very uncomfortable learning hard truths without new truths to step into. So I just ask people to listen, like keep the is true or false as you think it is. Just listen to this person's experience. Just listen. It's different than yours. It may contradict something you were taught. Just listen. You and I have no power. So if somebody says something that is against the government, who nothing's going to happen because we're nobody, you know? So just let people express their first try to find a way to sit with them. It sounds easy, but I guess a lot of people do struggle with that. Just listen. Mm. Well, it's just so good to have you here. Thank you. All right. Well, um, apparently we could talk for 30 hours straight. I appreciate you having me. I really, really, really do. And I don't feel like we are done. You know, no. I feel like there's some some weird future things that you and I are going to be making a lot of noise about in the future. Doesn't it feel that way? Yeah, that's a good yes. one. Yeah. OK, Jen. And that was Jennifer Robin, a.k.a. Miss Jiff. Choctaw. Doesn't that sound like mischief? And she is a four-time award-winning producer and host of Resilience Radio on KVMR 89.5 FM in Nevada City, California. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse, and you have been listening to First Voices Radio. You can feel it in the streets On a day like this day It feels like summer I feel like summer. I feel like summer. You can feel it in the streets on a day like this. That I feel like summer. She feels like summer. I feel like some seven days. 
know 